This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. After a three-month break, the U.S. Supreme Court returns to work on Monday, October 3rd. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. High court observers say the 6-3 conservative majority has already upended key aspects of American life with a series of landmark decisions last term, the most explosive of which was Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization that effectively revoked a constitutional right to abortion previously guaranteed for almost 50 years. The court is poised to issue major decisions on affirmative action, voting rights, and LGBTQ rights in the new term. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman to ever sit on the Supreme Court, will also make her debut. On this edition of Encounter, we reprise our discussion from early August when two experts reviewed key cases from the previous term and expressed opposing views on striking down a constitutional right to abortion. They conclude by previewing cases for this term and sparring over the nature and direction of the Supreme Court. For decades, anti-abortion activists had been challenging the right to abortion established by the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which said that the Constitution of the United States conferred the right to have an abortion, albeit with stipulations. Despite incremental progress toward the goal of severely restricting access to abortion, few thought these efforts would result in the wholesale reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision. But that is exactly what happened in June 2022, when conservative Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito penned the majority decision overruling Roe in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The ruling gives 50 states the freedom to regulate or ban the procedure. Other rulings from the 2021-2022 Supreme Court term also exemplify the impact of the new conservative majority. For 50 years, the court had a liberal majority. However, Donald Trump's appointment of three Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, altered the ideological balance of the court from moderate liberal to a 6-3 conservative majority. Well, with us to review recent decisions from the current court and preview upcoming ones, we welcome two distinguished judicial experts. Elliot Minsberg is senior counsel at the Liberal People for the American Way, and that's a progressive advocacy group based in Washington, and Carrie Severino. She's president of Judicial Crisis Network. That's a conservative advocacy organization initially founded in 2005 to promote the judicial appointees of then-President George W. Bush. And our guests join us via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thank you, Carol. Ladies first, Carrie Severino, let me turn to you. As I mentioned in my introduction, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court has struck down a number of cases to the chagrin of the three liberal justices, and in some cases to the majority of Americans. And of course, now I'm referring to Roe versus Wade. It was a lightning bolt that jolted many abortion supporters. Protests exploded around the country in opposition to this ruling. The reversal of what was considered a right, a reversal of what was considered by many settled law. And now many states are enacting bans or severe restrictions on abortion access. Do you think that this ruling tests the legitimacy of the high court and to some extent vindicates a decades long strategy by conservatives to install conservative justices prepared to reject precedents such as Roe v. Wade? 
Well, I think the Dobbs case, which is the one we're talking about that overturned Roe, absolutely was a crucial test of legitimacy for the court. But I think that that is being used in a different way than is accurate. The real legitimacy of the court has to do with knowing that we have judges on the court who are going to be faithful to what their legal interpretation is, not what they think the best political outcome is. So frequently you hear people complaining that, well, this is a bad thing for the court's legitimacy because this is an unpopular decision, because most Americans would like to have fewer restrictions on abortion or something like that. That's something the court shouldn't be considering. And second of all, that's something the court's decision actually allows people to do. If most Americans do want abortion to be legal in certain circumstances, although those kind of cross a wide range as to when it is, this decision in returning it to what the Constitution actually wrote about abortion, which is basically nothing, allows the states to make those decisions. So it, in fact, returns this issue to the political branches. And I think ultimately that is the most legitimacy building decision this court could make, because while they did have a whole lot of pressure, particularly after the unprecedented leak of the decision, they did not change their minds as a result of that outside political pressure and made their decision based on legal questions. And I think that ultimately is what gives the court legitimacy. So let me turn to you, Elliot Mintzberg. I believe you probably have a much different interpretation of how the court based its decision on overturning Roe v. Wade. Absolutely. I mean, overall, Carol, we believe this was one of the most dangerous and destructive terms in Supreme Court history, precisely because they are not truly deciding on legal bases. They can claim that but really on what they want the law to be. And with five of them voting one way, they have the power to do that. Take the Roe versus Wade decision. Even very conservative Chief Justice John Roberts did not vote with the far-right majority. He ruled, yes, you could uphold the Mississippi law as the court has a number of other restrictive laws, but it was improper to completely eliminate the right to reproductive freedom recognized by the court for more than 50 years. And we've already seen tremendous dangers. You've talked about states making abortion illegal in one state. A big health company won't even provide abortions to immediate rape victims because they're afraid that their doctors will get prosecuted. The decision was a disaster, perhaps the first time in history that the Supreme Court took away an individual constitutional right, the right to reproductive freedom, than it had recognized before. Some of these very far right-wing states pass laws to restrict privacy, whether it's same-sex marriage or relations, whether it's use of contraception, whether it's a number of other family and, and marital related rights, all of these are in tremendous danger from what the Supreme Court did. Danger from a court that is not at all consistent from its use of history. The court claims, for example, oh, well, there's nothing in the history of the Constitution that has to do with allowing abortion. The, the founders didn't say anything about that. Well, the founders said a lot about not using government money to support religion, but the court ignored that issue and turned right around in a different case this year and said not just the government could, but the government is required to use government money to pay for religious schools in Maine. So I don't think we're seeing consistency from the Supreme Court. We're seeing decisions that reflect this majority's very, very conservative policy preferences. We're continuing our discussion about the U.S. Supreme Court 
and previewing the coming term. Let me turn back to Carrie Severino. Carrie, briefly, let me just pick up on what Elliot was saying. You have said that the current court, particularly the conservative majority, is simply following the Constitution. But there are critics who would say that actually what they're seeing, and this is from Richard Haas, foreign policy expert at the Council on Foreign Relations, he says that, quote, as a result of the Roe versus Wade decision that American democracy, if it is to endure, needs a Supreme Court that is widely accepted as an impartial referee. But he says that this court, by how it was constituted and by rulings, appears to be more about policy than law and as a result has forfeited its legitimacy. So what he's saying and what others are saying, that contrary to what you're asserting, that the conservatives in particular are following the law, that many see the conservative majority as actually legislating to some extent. So how do you respond to that? Well, I would say you can test it by looking at their arguments. I would really take issue with Elliot's contention that, for example, the case regarding school funding was contrary to the uh, history there. I think he's alluding to the fact that we have a, a clause that prohibits the establishment of religion. But as I'm sure he knows, when the Constitution was passed, it was very clear that only applied to the federal government. Many states had established churches. So the idea that there's a history saying there certainly couldn't be state funding, even of a church, let alone in the case that that was considering a neutral scholarship program that simply allowed parents to choose one of many private schools, including religious schools, to use their own children's scholarship money on. So if you look at the arguments, I think that's the best test. And I think looking at the arguments given by the other side illustrates that what's really going on here is the people who are losing, complaining, saying, well, we must have lost because they disagreed with us in the policy. If you look at the conservative members of the court, it doesn't mean conservative, like this is my policy policy thing. I'm, I'm a Republican or whatever. For much of the recent history, many of the Republican nominees to the court were some of the most liberal judicially on the court. What we mean by conservative on the court is they are looking to the text of the law and the text of the Constitution, interpreting those words as they were meant when they were written and not being allowed to bring one's own views in. If you look at some of the top cases from this term, including the abortion case, as well as a Second Amendment case, look at the dissents and the arguments they're making. It is arguments about, oh, well, this will have very bad real world consequences. For example, in the Second Amendment case, arguments about there are problems with gun violence and there are reasons to want more limits on guns. Those are not legal arguments. Those are policy arguments and they're arguments that should absolutely be considered, but they should be considered by a legislature, not by the court. Likewise, the dissent in the Dobbs case, the arguments had a lot to do with what they think the right real world outcomes are. That is not the job of a judge. The job of a judge is to look at what the law actually requires. So I would say that is the test and you'll find the conservative, the judicially conservative members of the court, often coming to results that are politically liberal, in particular because our Constitution is so strong on protecting defendants and criminal defendants. Justices like Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, some of the leading conservative members of the court, have been the strongest in strengthening and protecting those things like right to confront witnesses against you or the right to a jury trial. And I think that's a great test of, do they really mean it? And I think you can see that even when they come to results that might be contrary to their own policy things, I don't think either of those men is particularly personally pro-defendant, but I think they're constitutionally pro-defendant because they're so committed to interpreting that document as it's written. Turning to you, Elliot Mintzberg, Carrie Severino makes reference to separation of church and state, which is another bedrock principle of our Constitution. 
And I believe you probably have something to say about that. But I believe she's also referring to fundamental philosophical differences in how to interpret the Constitution. She seems to be expressing what we call so-called originalist philosophy. If you would be willing to comment on that. The so-called originalist philosophy, also the textualist philosophy, claim that you interpret the Constitution according to its plain text and to the meaning that it was thought to have at the time of its origination. But the founders, or in the case of the 14th Amendment, those at the time of the 14th Amendment, thought. The problem is that those are not litmus tests that lead to just one answer. As the court has seen over and over again, you can make arguments on the originalist and on the textual side for basically both positions in most of these major controversial cases, as we've seen. We've seen this particularly with respect to religion and church state, where there is strong argument from the founders, from Jefferson, from Madison, that government should not be promoting religion or funding religion. But that's what the majority of this court is allowing to happen over and over again. It certainly is true, and I give them credit for it, that in a number of criminal law cases, we don't see the same kind of policy perspective as we do on others. But when it comes to political issues that, frankly, the Republican Party cares about, whether it's abortion, gun safety, religion, or all these others, the right wing of the Supreme Court consistently lines up with the right wing of the Republican Party. And I don't think that's a coincidence. You are listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. My guests are Elliot Mintzberg. He's senior counsel at the Liberal People for the American Way, from whom you just heard, and Carrie Severino, president of the Conservative Judicial Crisis Network. We're reflecting on some recent rulings of the U.S. Supreme Court and to what extent they portend how the court will approach cases in the coming term. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voaafrica.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Kim Mandel from Juba, South Sudan. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Turning back to you, Carrie Severino, we've been looking back, but I'd like now to look forward to the coming term to get your take on how you think the term will play out with the new very solid conservative majority and give us a sense of some of the cases that we'll be looking at. We've talked now about reproductive rights, and we'll have to see how that plays out among the states. And we talked about the separation between church and state and religious liberty. There's also a case coming up that I'd like you to talk about with regard to voting rights, elections, something called the independent state legislature theory that is perhaps going to be tested. Tell us how you see some of the cases coming up and how you think the court will decide and how much impact that will have. Last term, I don't think we'll have a term as momentous in terms of the number number of really important issues that were discussed very soon. But this coming term has some really significant cases. As you pointed out, particularly to be looking at this as we have elections looming, the independent state legislature case is obviously isn't going to be decided in time for the 2022 elections, but certainly in time for the 2024 ones, because it would happen within the coming term. That has to do with whether, as the Constitution says, it commits the regulation of election to the state legislatures. But we have a system. There's different ways in which the system has changed 
changed from the way it originally was done so that we have a lot more federal involvement elections. We have states, and this happened particularly in 2020, where it's not the legislature, but maybe courts overriding the legislature and doing something different than what the statute said that are becoming involved. And so I think that's going to be an important question. Another really top line case that people will be watching are a pair of cases have to do with Harvard and the University of North Carolina and their practice of using race in their admissions process. And so the court for many years has struggled in multiple cases with racial preferences in education and whether that is something that they'll be allowing. In this case, they have both a public and a private university that receive public funds that have been alleged to do that. And the numbers are pretty clear that it seems like Asian Americans in particular are being discriminated against in favor of Black and Hispanic students. And so the question is, can you do what's termed as benign discrimination. They're trying to help people, but because it's a zero-sum game of how many students come in, they're hurting other people in the process. I think another important one will be 303 Creative. If people remember the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that came up a few years ago, this is similar. It has to do with a web designer who is happy to do websites for anyone, but wants to do wedding websites. And in terms of what kind of wedding she promotes, she only wants to promote traditional marriage between a man and woman because of her religious convictions. So it's not a matter of not serving individuals, but not wanting to give certain messages. And the question is, can Colorado force her to, if she does any wedding websites, do every wedding, including those that violate her deeply held beliefs? Those are just a few. There's some other really important ones, but I think those will be some of the top issues. Turning to you, Elliot Minsberg, as we look ahead to get your take on some of these big cases, what impact they will have, how the Supreme Court could reshape elections for president and Congress. Carrie also mentioned the affirmative action in university admissions. How do you see the upcoming term? I think the upcoming term is an extremely important one, and Carrie has correctly identified, although maybe misdescribed one or two of the cases that they'll be considering. Voting is a critical area. We've talked about this so-called independent state legislature doctrine. It's always been the case that what the court has interpreted that to mean is essentially somebody in the state. For example, there was one case where a state referendum became effectively the independent state legislature. But what some right-wing Republicans are claiming is that a state legislature can take action with respect to elections that not only overturns a referendum by the people, even overturns state Supreme Court decisions on how to correctly interpret laws relating to elections. So it's an extremely important case. They're going to have enormous implications. More immediately in voting, the court last term in two of its 5-4 shadow docket decisions allowed to go forward for this year several discriminatory redistricting plans. This was in Alabama and Louisiana, where a lower courts found that there was serious discrimination against African-American and other minority voters because of the way lines were drawn. The court said, you can go ahead and do that for this year, so much for 2022, and it's going to decide, among other things, whether you can use the Voting Rights Act at all to question racially discriminatory redistricting. So that's like another critical voting rights case. I agree that the affirmative action case is important. I disagree, obviously, that it shows discrimination. If it did, action could and should have been taken. The question is whether it is permissible to try to promote diversity in admissions, among other factors, which the court not too long ago said was perfectly okay, but now the court is questioning again. 
And I do want to say a word about that last LGBTQ case that Carrie mentioned. The issue there is whether that person who wants to sell wedding invitations and other stuff can essentially exclude same-sex couples who want to get married to each other. They would not be able to use the services of that publicly available website. If the court says yes to that, it's just one step further to saying, well, my religion tells me that interracial weddings are impractical or, or impossible or wrong, and therefore I want to not serve interracial weddings. Why not? If one is permitted, the other can be too. There is supposed to be non-discrimination in public accommodations, and that's what that case is about. Let me just conclude by asking each of you, first, Carrie, if you have any closing remarks regarding the makeup of the Supreme Court and their impact on the future, particularly this coming term and coming years. Because now, as I said earlier, what was considered a more liberal, moderate majority has certainly been converted to a very conservative court, and that will have major impact on American life, as we saw with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I think this is a great success to see a court that is committed to interpreting the laws as written. And I don't think that's going to determine policy-wise where the outcome is going to be. I think by holding themselves strictly to the words of a statute, it means if you want the law to be different, you don't have to try to appeal to five unelected men and women in robes. You have to just elect different legislatures. That's how a democracy is supposed to work. We elect our representatives and they are the ones who write the law and not unelected judges. So I think this is a great step forward for Americans on all sides of the aisle. Yes, it'll be more difficult if you're on the left and used to having the courts do the job for you. But now we simply have to do this through the proper legislative and representative process. And I think that's ultimately going to be good for America across the board. I'm also very happy to see that we have a court that is willing to stick to its principles, even under threats and intimidation, because there has been a great deal of threats up to an attempted assassination against one of the justices. And we're hearing things even from politicians threatening them, threatening to pack the court and change the number of justices because they're frustrated that they don't like the fact that these are the justices that had come about by the traditional method of allowing a president and Senate to put judges on. So I think it's great to see, agree or disagree with the justices, I think we should all agree, we want them to be able to make their decisions free from intimidation. So I'm glad they've done that so far. I hope we see more efforts on the federal side to protect our justices and enforce laws against intimidating them so that they can continue to do their job into next term and beyond. And I'll give you the last word, Elliot Mintzberg. I have a feeling you have something to say in rebuttal. One or two items. I mean, I do agree 100 percent with Kerry that what people on my side of the political view have to do is really work hard on elections on state legislative elections, on federal elections, to take back our Constitution and to take back our federal courts. What we've seen has been the effect of more than 50 years of work by the far right to do what they have done all too successfully, culminating in the work by President Trump and Senator McConnell, which did not at all follow the usual process, at least two of the justices got on the court because in one case, the Republicans in Congress refused to even allow a hearing on President Obama's nomination of now Attorney General Garland for over a year. And in another case, the rush to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat was so huge and so quick that the process there started even as our elections 
had begun, something that had never happened in our history before. So we are, however, stuck with what we're stuck with. There are proposals which we certainly support to consider changing the size of the court, partly to overcome some of that bad work that was done by McConnell and Trump. But I think the fundamental point is a correct one. We have a very, very conservative Supreme Court, one whose majority is closely aligned with the policy and political views of the far right of the Republican Party. And it's going to take hard work by progressives on the other side to turn that around. Well, on that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guests, Elliot Mintzberg, Senior Counsel at The People for the American Way, and Carrie Severino, President of the Judicial Crisis Network. Thank you both for your terrific analysis and contrasting opinion. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on the Voice of America. Thank you.